Oh, ladies and gentlemen, podcast time. Um, this is our second one with John Wright, our, um, our auditor. Um, the first one was really well received. It was great because um, I think everybody likes to hear John's perspective on things and they want to get a bit of an insight before you, um, you, you get up there for audit. And the way that we audit, you know, we want to quick, you know, com- continue to improve your files. John, lots of cool audits going on at the moment, mate. Um, you've got uh, lockdowns kept you at home and you're keeping everyone on the straight and narrow. I am, yeah, and good morning to all the advisors and their support crew listening in. Uh, look, it's been a, quite a busy time at home. I've actually had a day off yesterday. I was uh, just feeling I needed a little bit of an extra refresher, so uh, all ready to go again and uh, looking forward to today's session. I suppose uh, a day off for you uh, is sitting back and reading regulatory guides. Just about. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's, there's enough of them. Mate, there's heaps of stuff on there today, and I know we've got a, we've got quite a few to get through, so we'll get a bit of the low-hanging fruit, a bit of the simple stuff first. Um, FDSs yep. and new advice. So, um, you know I, know, I know it came out before, but if I've um, got a, a new ongoing service agreement or a new SOA that I'm giving to a client, I have to give them a, um, a, an FDS covering the last 12 months, correct? Yeah, look, there is one little loophole, and that is if you're not providing, if you're providing no new advice and you're not altering your ongoing service agreement, if that new advice within that SOA was covered off in the ongoing service agreement, so you said you were going to give them one SOA a year, free of charge included in in that ongoing service agreement, which wouldn't happen in 99 out of 100 times, then yes, if you're giving a new SOA with new advice, then it resets the FDS clock. Now, the advisors will come back to you and say, Section uh, Regulatory Guide 245 says it's the ongoing service agreement that actually resets the FDS, but it's the SOA that triggers the new ongoing service agreement. So it's a bit of a catch-22. Regardless of which way you go, you effectively have to give an FDS when you give a new SOA with new advice. Yeah, I hope that makes it clear. <laughs> well, I suppose I can clear that up because what you're saying is the exception. And in that, in that weird SOA, if you're doing an SOA that has no advice in it, why do the SOA in the first place? So, you know, the licensee, you know, when in doubt, give them an FDS for the last 12 months? For sure, because like you say, why do an SOA if you don't have to, unless you've said you're doing it in your original ongoing service agreement, which doesn't make sense either. So mate, look, we'll roll on to the next one, which is best interest duties. And obviously we hit this all the time, but the best interest duties, and the good thing about the position that we find ourselves in in this license is that the bar is continuing to lift in the best interest duty space. And our advisors are taking stuff on board, and yeah, they're forgetting some stuff on some old files. But as a general rule, in the in the future, their their advice is far but far less conflicted. One thing that has been coming up is, especially this time of year, when clients are coming to you and saying, coming to their advisor and saying, "I need to have additional money to put into an investment or a superannuation or, or something along those lines," the advisor still has to approve that the product that the, they're putting the additional investment in is still appropriate. Yeah, that, look, it's, it's sort of an unwritten ruling in everything that's going on these days from ASIC. 
you read between the lines and basically every time you deal with the client and there's an action on their fund, we're still supposed to analyse to make sure that it's still appropriate. Now, if the advisor's done their homework initially and there's been no significant change in the marketplace around, I mean, we're looking at the moment with COVID and all this sort of stuff, but it's really not having a direct impact on the quality of the market overall. The values have dropped, but the quality of the market is still there. So all the surrounding stuff around that is still okay. So basically, you've just got to make a file note around the fact that you've looked at the product and the product appears to still be appropriate given our original strategies and goals and objectives. The problem you have is if you get a new or a product that then starts to get some clouds over and that's when you do have to potentially have a look at other products if, if, it, if you're finding that, that product is not suitable. But once again, the other thing you can do, especially for your superannuation clients who you've got ongoing contribution strategies with them, it wouldn't hurt for you to reschedule their reviews to your April, May, June, so that you're all you're doing your product review while you're reviewing the amount of contributions that they need to make. So it actually streamlines the overall process. Not saying you have to, but it's just something to consider. And again, it's one of those things where you don't necessarily have to go back to the client and say, yeah. You know, obviously in your file note or your ROA, there'll be a note to say that, you know, we do consider this product more still appropriate. But the evidence behind that comparison need only be on the file. And just you need to prove whether That's you're correct at some point to say that, yeah, I, I, I continually compare these type of uh, investments and uh, this one is still the most appropriate in this case or appropriate enough. So, mate... Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. It's yeah. Okay. So look, you know, that's a, it's a reasonable one, but the, um, the, the, the thing for us is that we've got to continue to lift the bar in the best interest duties and realize that the best interest is not based on advice. The best interest is, is the client's needs and, um, and everybody has a that's correct. style of needs. Um, we look at another, in my next podcast, I'll talk about the appropriate of managed funds in the future as well, especially given the current environment, but uh, we won't cover that here. The next thing we want to we wanted to talk about briefly, mate, was um, TWAs, execution only, um, client directed. What's your thoughts? You know, obviously that's a um, something that's coming up a little bit more now with the sale of shares and additional contributions, all that sort of thing. When, when can we do one of those? Yeah, look, it, it's, you've got to be really, really careful. The moment you take the client situation into account with any of that advice that you're doing, you're deemed to give advice. So if a client comes in and says, I've, I've, I've got 10,000 spare cash, I'd like to make a contribution to my super, then basically that's a, a transaction without advice, client directed. So basically you would just make a file note around that and that can go in. If a client comes in and says to you, I want to buy X, X, XYZ shares or sell XYZ shares and that's all he wants then basically you can do that 
with a client directed, you can charge a small transaction fee, but that basically is all you can do. The moment you start, um, you know, I had a query from one advisor wanting to use Lonsec buy, hold, sells for clients, sending that out to the client for them to, just for their consideration, no advice. ASIC would deem that that is advice because you've actually sent out details of their specific details. So the, the rationale with all this is the moment you take clients' actual situation into consideration, you're deemed to have given advice. Yeah, it's one of those things that there's a two issues there that um, are paramount for mine. And the first one is the fact that the file note has to be specific that you didn't actually give them any advice and you don't want to fall into the trap of accidentally documenting what you've talked to them about, you know, with regard to advice. So it's really, you've got to be really careful that you've, your file note is specific and it says there was no advice involved. Here we did the transaction. The other one is the fee and you've got to be really careful about your fee in that if you're doing a transaction for somebody, you're perfectly entitled to charge for that transaction but it has to be a transaction or an administrative fee. It can't be an advice fee. And you've just got to be really, really careful that as if as soon as you put down that it's an advice fee and you charge for it, then you're on the hook for the full piece of advice. That's the way that it sits, isn't it? It is, yeah. It, virtually, if your fingerprint is on any of the paperwork or anything like that, technically, you can be deemed to have given advice. So you've got to be very clear that it's the client who is fully directed the product. He's got a, not, it's not just that I sell some shares. I want to sell Commonwealth Bank shares. I want to sell 500. If and you, you can say to the client, right, I can sell those today for you, or do you have a price in mind? Because then you can then put them up to sell if it hits that price. But it's all about, it's the client giving that direction. It's not about you saying, oh yeah, I reckon it'd be a good time to sell Commonwealth Bank shares. Because once you take all that into consideration, it, once again, you, you're deemed to give advice. So I think I've, I've most likely a lot of you have heard the example of the SGC contributions, where you have a client currently, or, or a new client currently earning $100,000 a year, we'll say 10% SGC. So they've got $10,000 going in from their employer. You look at that. If you tell the client there is a limit of $25,000, you have given generic advice. But if you tell that client that he's got $15,000 he could use, you've taken their situation into account and you've given advice. And in a lot of cases too, John, those cases, that advice is only ROAable anyway. So it's not a big piece of work to get it done. That's right. For your existing clients, but it is something that these guys have to have their head around. That's right. They've got to understand what crosses the line from advice versus client directed. And it, it's a very fine line, but they've got to have an understanding. The moment they take any of the client situation into if they turn around and tell them there could be capital gains on the sale, and it's a, the, then the client says, well, what capital gains? You're giving advice. You can give a warning that 
because it's a generic comment. But the moment you actually work, if you worked the capital gains out for the client, you've given advice. Yeah, well, yeah. I think even if you suggested that in your case, there's more than likely capital gains, you're, you're on the hook as well. That's right, yeah. All right, so well, look, the, the TWA situation is going to uh, become a little bit more prevalent, I think, but uh, we just have to be wary, guys, and uh, that you do this uh, appropriately. And when you're not giving advice, don't give any advice. Now, look, another other one we were talking about at the moment is uh, scoping and file notes. Now, our, my interpretation of the um, of the code of ethics, as we've adopted, we've been forced to adopt as of one January, and we'll be uh, you know loosely this year, but in full next year, is that you know advice needs to be fair, complete, and non-conflictive. When you're scoping advice, obviously, then we're effect, that's affecting the completeness of the advice. Um, how are you seeing that from the advisor's perspective, John? Uh, overall, the quality is quite poor. Going for going from the backdating from the audits and some of the pre-vet work, which I've done a lot of work with those new advisors, trying to get them to understand where they need, what detail they need to have. The crux is you've you've got to get that first comment from the client on a piece of paper. Why did the client come to see you? We don't like seeing, oh, the client came to see me because they want to roll over their funds to a fund that gives them wider exposure and they want to have an advisor look up after it for them. That, if an ASIC auditor walks in the door, you've given them a key to unlock your file to go through it with a microscope. What you want to see is the clients come in and say, look, I've got this super fund. I really don't understand it or I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I, COVID, they've said everybody's losing money in super. Can you look at mine? It's just capturing that raw need. Then you have the discussion with the client and that's when you start developing, building on that initial need and you start looking at the goals they want to achieve what strategies you can put in place, but the average client will not, will not come in and tell you what I normally see in five notes. It's a, it's a funny one, isn't it? We, uh, look, you and I especially, we get to read a lot of file notes that uh, seem like they've been written specifically for you and I to read, not... Uh, That's right. <laughs> they just reek of uh, the advisor's words and not of the client's. Yeah. The other part with the scoping is, it's only the client who scopes the advice. We can provide scoped advice, but it's the client. And when the client says to you, I don't want any insurance for argument's sake, you say to the client, well, would you like me to at least do a calculation what I think you might need? If they say no again, you say, look, by not giving me any of this information or allowing me to do that, there is a very significant risk that you won't have adequate insurances or you won't have insurances in place should the worst occur. Then get the client's acknowledgement that they understand those consequences. It's not just them saying they don't want the advice. They've got to understand what's being scoped out. And they've got to understand that whatever they scope out has potential impacts overall on the advice. One that ASIC are really looking at now is income and expenses and cash flow. 
you've got to work through that with the clients. And if they don't want to give you expenses, how much do you think you put in to save in your bank account each month? Or, you know, have a look at their bank balance. If they've only got $100 in the bank, they're not saving anything more than likely. So you can sort of at least work around that and say the clients work on a balanced budget or they seem to save, you know, $1,000 a year. So they're possibly saving, you know, $50 a month or whatever that you think is going to be there. But you've got to have some evidence that you've looked into that. And it becomes crucial in two things. When, one, when you're working out whether they can have insurances within their super or outside their super. And the other one is when you're doing calculations that need to know what income levels they need. If you don't have that supporting documentation, ASIC will fail that file straight away. It's, it's just clear cut. So John, so what we're saying is we do need, we, we, we look, we need to garner some, some cash flow details and, and that sort of thing. And if it never takes a little bit of um, work on our part to have a look at it and probably translate it, because I know that a lot of times as a client say, well, I don't want you to do my budget, mate. Look, I've been doing this for years. I don't need that. But we do need to evidence that we've actually been in that space. Look, another issue that, um, that comes up in the scoping, John, is there's some advisors, for example, that don't do risk insurance. How do they scope that out and how do they, um, you know, how does that appear in their SOA or their advice? Yeah, look, if they're scoping it out because they don't do risk, then they've got to clearly warn the client. Their FSG will say that they don't provide risk insurance. And then it works if they have somebody who they can refer them on to. But the advisor's got to make it very clear that they don't, if they're not giving risk advice, then that they have a process in place that will clearly say, we don't give advice in this area, we recommend that you seek advice elsewhere for that, or we have an association with another group or another advisor within AE who does do risk and is comfortable in doing the risk work for you. And if you're going to do that, you've, you've really got to be careful that there's a bit of a, you've got to have a release for information, a two-way flow of information back. If you refer them on to somebody else, you've got to have their permission to pass on those details. And also there's an, uh, a requirement that that detail of what actually has been recommended taken up comes back to the advisor who's given me a recommendation so he at least understands their overall situation you know there's there's a couple of groups one i know out of newcastle afrm all they do is risk and they they then push all their other advice onto other advisors to do that sort of work but they have this two-way street so that they know and they, they've used this process for oh, I must be 15 20 years and it works well for them but you've got to understand that if you don't want to give that advice that there's got to be something there in a way of a warning and a potential recommendation where to go elsewhere to to get that and look, advisors at our level, we should be identifying, like we can identify when someone actually needs some risk, whether or not we actually give them that risk insurance is something. But look, the, uh, the advisor need also to be talking about 
you know, looking at how many bank accounts they've got, talking about consolidating bank accounts, looking at credit cards, looking at estate planning, looking at you know, where they've got their wills and they, you know, there's so much other scope that, you know, we're probably neglecting a little bit. So one other thing though, too, is, you know, to what extent can we talk about their mortgage? Yeah, look, you can talk about it as far as cash flows. You can talk about uh, debt reduction. You can talk about if they're buying another property, what potentially they may need to borrow. But you can't recommend a product unless you've got a credit licence. So basically, when you're talking about, you can say you have a current mortgage and this is how much you're paying. Once you start saying you have a NAB mortgage, then you're starting to cross the line. Uh, and if you're talking about, you know, sort of you've got a client who you can see is stuck on a, a quite a high interest rate loan still when, when you know rates are possibly one, one and a half percent lower. Look, you may wish to go and discuss with a mortgage broker the potential of refinancing, those types of things. But you don't start mentioning product. And that, that's really the, the safety net there for advisors. They can talk in generic terms. They can talk about refinancing. They can talk about repayments changing from monthly to fortnightly. Those types of things to, to work with their cash flows. But you can't then say, look, we recommend you go and see a NAB advisor and or take out a NAB loan because we know NAB's got a good quality loan, those types of things. So the estate to... plan, sorry. Sorry, yeah, well, we'll go further to that. Is there anything out there that we can't advise on? Um, Assuming we have all the qualifications. Really? Yeah, look, the one I've had a couple of queries of lately is for overseas citizens, tax citizens, is one area that's quite, it's a difficult area because if they're a tax resident of another country, even though we're only giving advice on their Australian portion of their investments, we're not aware of the tax consequences in that other country. And one of the key ones is with superannuation, is while that the earnings in the super fund here are not a taxable item for tax in Australia, in some other countries around the world, even though you don't have access to that money, that money, if you're a tax resident of that country, can be deemed as income and taxable. So that's why we say with clients, if you're dealing with clients that are overseas, it's fine as long as they're still a tax resident of Australia, but once they become a tax resident of another country, it technically you're then you're you can't give advice in that area. So it's it's one to be really careful of. And look, there's not a lot of people who are tax residents of other countries, and you don't see a lot of them, but there are some. And if you do have those, just be aware that you can't provide advice that could potentially impact on on their overseas tax. And look, John, that's the, the advice from us is don't hide from giving advice. And, uh, you know, yeah. it's only a very, very rare occasion where there's something that you can't do. And then that, you know, you can soon check that with your 
or I, but um, what, um, you know, the takeout for us is that when clients come in, don't be afraid to give them advice. Don't be hiding behind, first of all, your lack yeah. of knowledge. Don't hide behind um, your lack of anything that is advisor driven because yeah. the, the clients are coming to us to be that full, um, that complete advisor for them and to tick all the boxes and things for them. So, yeah, no, look, yeah. it's important for that. Mate, um, I think the other thing there is remember the the advice the specific advice we give is around strategy. Product is only a means to meet that strategy, and too often when you read a plan or read the file notes, it appears that the product is driving the strategy, not the other way around, and you know, advisors have got to have a clear understanding that the key piece of information they always provide to the clients is the strategy and that the product helps meet that strategy. And I think that's, there's a, quite a few advisors, not, I'm not just talking AE, but out in the world of advising, too many advisors are allowing the product to drive the strategy, not the other way around. Yeah, it's been a uh, that that look, and that that has been something, especially when we were people who have um, advisors who have come from a much more aligned um, advice channel, and uh, realizing now that you know we're completely non-conflicted, so it, it doesn't matter that the, the product is irrelevant. It's getting that uh, piece of strategy right, and then finding a product which is you know most suitable. Not trying to squeeze things, and when you you know you're looking at two products and there's ten dollars difference in them, you know. It's a no-brainer. You don't have to give that piece of advice. That's right. The advice is to stay with the yeah. one that's uh, that they're currently got because it saves everybody some time and it doesn't waste that extra piece of money. Mate, uh, that on that reading SOAs. Look, that's that's something that I've been pushing at the moment. There's a lot of generic text that's been carried forward from um, deep into our deep in our past. And uh, what are you seeing from the in the SOAs that you're coming across your desk? The, the first thing I would say to all the advisors out there, please read your SOAs before presenting them to the clients. That's the, the amount of typos that are in SOAs. Some advisors will say, tell you that I pick up typos. The typos I tend to pick up and highlight are if they are around crucial parts of the advice, like the dollar numbers are wrong, the percentages are wrong, those type of areas. If you're not dotting I's and crossing T's, I really don't care or if they're spelling mistakes or that sort of thing. But the, I would say every SOA that I read would have at least 10, 12 typos in them. Now, in a, in a big document, that's, that's not a lot of typos, but if you're a client reading that and you're finding errors like that in there, then it doesn't look good for you. The other part is around with generic text. We, we put so much generic text into our SOAs to support to show that our advice is in the client's best interest. But you've just got to make sure that it's relevant to the clients. One of the classic ones I'm seeing a lot of at the moment, and it's the wording around when you turn 60, the income with and you take an account-based pension, it's tax-free, or when you turn 60, you can access your funds 
under a condition of release, and the client's 72, uh, I think, well, you know, why is that paragraph in there? Why hasn't the advisor clearly seen that's not relevant for this client? And I'm just using that as an example. There are plenty of others in there that when you're reading through may or may not be relevant to the clients. Just be careful and have a read. And if look, if it doesn't appear to be relevant, remove it. And, you know, we're all complaining about RSOAs get too big and too long. But if you're filling it full of generic text, you know, the other one is where they'll put all the insurance text in the body of the SOA around what is crime insurance, what is life insurance, what is income protection insurance. Just put the relevant wording in there and refer them to the appendix where all that lovely generic text can be and doesn't cause any problems. All of a sudden, your SOA is four pages shorter in the actual body of the document. You know, if it's relevant that you want to highlight something specifically to the client about the insurance that you're giving, yeah, leave it in there. But it's the bit that's relevant to them, not, you know, the whole the whole story of life insurance and trauma insurance and these sorts of things. You know, you've really got to be trying to make sure that what's in there is specifically relevant to the client. And this is one thing ASIC is saying when they're looking at SOAs, there is too much generic information in there that's clouding the real stuff that the client needs to know. Yeah, it's a, um, look, uh, for me, if there's too much generic disclosure in there, it's just a sign that the advisor's probably been a bit lazy. And yeah. uh, if it's generally, that's, if you look in there and you think, wow, there's a lot of stuff in it that they don't need, then, well, what else have they done? You know, and, uh, you know, obviously they haven't been thorough in the preparation of the SOA. So, look, the takeout from that is read your SOAs and specifically the generic text and things because we know that generally you're going to get your, your forecasts and your actual strategy correct. But start looking at the stuff, the, the carryover stuff that's always been living in your, um, your SOAs because, you know, it's a general rule. If you don't need to disclose it, definitely don't disclose yeah. it. An over-disclosure is no longer something that we want to encourage. It's a, it's a bad thing. Yeah, and look, just to give you an example of a plan I've been looking at lately, uh, saving a client $35 per annum on their overall cost on an $80,000 investment, then charging a $3,500 implementation fee, an SOA fee, and then also charging an ongoing $550 advisor service fee to set up an account-based pension I, I just find it very difficult how an advisor can say that that advice is in that client's best interest. And I think there's a mindset there that the value of what you're doing for the client has to match what you're charging for that for that client. So for $35 a year, this client is going to pay $4,000 in the first year and then $550 a year ongoing to save you $35. Just doesn't cut it with me. And it shouldn't cut it with any advisor. And that just, and the thing is from our end, now there's obviously more to with that particular scenario, but 
the thing oh, there is. In, in those particular cases, when it comes across our desk, we look at that and we think, hang on a minute, they're making the client fit the strategy. And that's the thing that we're sort of concerned about. Whereas rather than taking the client and giving them what's best for them, it looks like a cookie cutter approach. And, and I know I talk about this in my CEO visits and we, we touch on cookie cutter advice and they're going, oh no, I don't do that. But there's a lot of cases where it appears that they do. You know, they may not be, but you know, you have to be really careful about the appearance of your file when you first pick it up and actually the, the overall strategic look. Yeah, it's that strategy. There's, there's nothing wrong with the strategy in this particular proposal, but could they have stayed where they were, paid $35 a year more, and still paid, maybe paid the advisor's review fee for them to keep doing the Sendlink letters and that sort of thing for them? But did they need them to do an SOA and go down that whole path? You know, it, it's some some of it's a fine line. Some clients most likely have to be dragged along and shown what to do. But at the end of the day, how much is too much advice for a client when it's costing them a lot of money? And I think that's the you know is it over servicing? Is it you know it's like a doctor who tells you to come back every week for a checkup every week when you most likely only need to go once every 12 months. Is that over-servicing the issue more than the quality of the advice? And, you know, we've really got to be, as advisors especially, conscious that we're under constant scrutiny and we don't want to give the scrutineers or ASIC any chance to say, hey, look at the, look at the crappy advice or the poor advice or whatever advisors are giving out there you know we're already under the microscope we don't want to be you know the, the advisor that gets caught out in this and I think you know sort of there there is a lot of scrutiny and we've just got to make sure that we can pass that. So um, John further to that let's talk about like for like when we're doing our comparisons it's it's the bane of the advisor's existence it's hard because uh, you know there's not uh, you know, to pick on a, on a product, the Colonial First State Wholesale, for example, has a, a mandate. It has a huge amount of managed funds. It's a very specific product if your model is based on managed funds. It's hard to find a product like that to compare it to. What do they do? You know, how do we get around this scenario? Look, I think it has to be a change of mindset longer term. I think advisors have got it. That's what we were talking about earlier. It's a strategy that drives the products. And in the marketplace, look, nothing wrong with Colonial First State as a product. But what we've got to start looking at, are there other products and types of products out there that are going to meet the client's goals and needs and objectives equally, if not better? So, you know, I mean, how many of the clients out there have access to ETFs and things like this where, you know, you'll have a, a, a client and you'll put them in three different Australian share funds within the platform. When you can do the same with an ETF 
and or two or three ETFs with different focuses, those types of things, where the actual product costs are a lot cheaper and are still doing exactly the same in meeting the strategy for the client. You know, we're not saying it's something that's got to change overnight, but there's got to be a greater understanding and awareness from advisors that you can't do a one product platform suits every client. And that's the difficulty. It's not, um, how can I put it? It's not something that you can keep using as a business model long term. You've got to start looking at products that meet the strategies, not strategies that meet the products. And I think that's that's the biggest, it's got to be a mindset and something going forward. And I'm sure, David, you'll be working with a lot of these businesses to get them to understand that, you know, sort of in this case, CFS is a good product, but long term, is it a product that's, can be deemed a one-size-fits-all, and I don't think it can longer term. At the moment, it's it's a product that is a good product, you know, sort of, but, you know, when you're comparing like for like, it's not just about trying to match Colonial First Aid against Australian Super or Hester. It's about what other products are also out there that can be deemed a bit more like for like, and just sort of being aware of those and starting to say, hey, well, look, you know, we've got products like Hub24, we've got products like Net Wealth, who have access to a totally different concept of investing. Is that something longer term that will actually meet the client's strategies better than a CFS? Now, in all it mightn't be in all cases that's what is good for the clients, but they've got to start looking at those other products and understanding, yes, they are different products, but they will definitely still meet the client's goals and objectives and also meet strategy better than what they're looking at at the moment. And to stay in the industry, I think we have to be aware that the master trusts filled a great role over the last 15 years or so, the summits, the north, the CFSs, but they're all disappearing and they're all, they're being gobbled up by funds like NetWealth and Hub24, who tend to have access to new, newer type products and cost-effective newer type products that you know can help better suit the client's strategies. Yeah, and look, it's it's really a, 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 it gets back to that capturing exactly what the client needs in the first place. You know, and I, I just see that. Um, you know, for me, that if a client's in a situation in a in a union fund, you know, taking away the current climate where there's cash and liquidity issues and revaluing of unlisted assets, let's ignore that from a device perspective at the moment. But if you're in a um, a perfectly good union fund which has a diversified option which is nicely spread and you don't have a million bucks, you know, like you've got your three or four hundred thousand, to be able to justify moving that to another bunch of managed funds hosted on a different platform, for mine, is, is that's hard to justify. And it seems to me when I read a platform, read a, a plan that does that, 
it's been done because the means of collecting the fee is easier for the advisor. And that's the thing that worries me. If the, the, the advice required needs better, you know, a better product, which has access to different styles of investment, investments and things, yeah, yeah, I can I can understand going and looking at different platforms and things, but when you're comparing and the and the differences between the two funds are so small, it's it's not a like for like comparison, and um, we're seeing people trying to squeeze it into a like for like comparison. Yeah, look, and it's it must be hard for some of these the neuroadvisors where they've been in a semi-controlled system whereby, in this case, CFS was the preferred product. And I'm sure if you go to AMP, they'll have a similar problem uh, that they're trying to now change with their advisors around being understanding, once again, it's the strategy, not the product, and that there are other products out there. And they've got to start, you know, the number of SOAs with the generic text is, you know, I can manage your investments better if they're in this fund. Uh, straight away, an ASIC, it, it just triggers an ASIC order to say, I need to look harder at this because it's all about the, the advisor's best interest, not the client's, because the advisor can access his funds easier. And, you know, it, you know, if you've got a client that's in an industry fund and you want to keep them there, if you normally charge a client in CFS $1,000 a year, you charge for cover for an extra two hours work where you know your, your PA staff will be on the, on the phone to that industry fund for an extra 30 minutes, you charge accordingly. So you, you charge them another $500 a year, but you, you don't take them out of a fund that's meeting their requirements and you're not trying to switch into a fund where there's a huge amount of fees involved ongoing. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a frustrating area, but it's also an area that we have to adapt to or ASIC will just have us in their sites. And, you know, there'll be just so many requests for files from ASIC and then from there, you know, potential banning orders if we're not if we're not fixing these sort of issues up as a licensee. And look, and that's that's one of the things that we're working on, John. And it, uh, you know, we appreciate your input in that space. We might, we, we could go on all day on this thing, and we'll probably want to make this a regular one. <laughs> so, um, let's uh, let's wind it up. Maybe is there anything else that you want to cover in in this week's uh, edition? Uh, no, look, I think at this stage, I think, uh, you know, the audit program's going well. The majority of the files we're looking at are getting a tick. That We've had a couple with a couple of hiccups that we need to work with. But look, it's just a matter of, it's a continual improvement program that we're working with. We're lucky that we're seeing some stuff that's coming out from ASIC now. We've got a greater understanding of what they're looking for. I mean, I've... Most of the advisors think I've been harping at them for the last four years about file notes and that. But, you know, it's what, what ASIC is looking for. If they're not there, you know, you're in trouble. So basically, you know, but overall, look, what we're seeing is coming through really well. We've had a couple of advisors who've come through absolutely squeaky clean, which is a real pleasure. But look, in, with the feedback that we're giving, we're getting across 
a better understanding with the advisors what they're needing to do and they're fully understanding of what they need to do. So look, ultimately we protect the licensee, we protect the advisors, but best thing, the clients get great advice. John, look, again, that's right. Look, um, there will be heaps of questions that come from this. So guys, email me or John the questions. And look, if you want us to cover something in the next edition, make sure you send us a note and we'll uh, prepare that as well. But uh, John Wright, thanks very much for your time today.